Okay, I'm glad you're here. There's a, a bunch of things that I want to talk about today. Um, one of them is, is the tenth test of Abraham Avinu, the, the, the culminating experience that, uh, that God comes to Abraham with um, in order to bring out the fullness of his potential. See, a lot of people ask, what's the nature of tests anyway? If God knows what you're capable of, then why, why test the person? God already knows what you're capable of. So if you think about it, the whole notion, spiritually speaking, of a test is kind of illogical or seemingly irrelevant. And yet the reality is, is that there's certain things that we are capable of, or even on a deeper level, there's certain things that we don't know that we're capable of, but transferring potential into reality, taking those things that we could do and actually doing them is all the difference in the world in terms of the Jewish view of life. And um, if you think of it on a physics level, just potential energy versus actual energy, it's all the difference in the world. One is something that's waiting to happen. The other is something that's actually manifest. And Judaism is about making things manifest. It's, um, it's about that, that, that transformation of energy into reality. And we're going to talk about this, on a, on a, hopefully on a deep level. And then, God willing, if, if, if we have time, we're going to talk about um, just how this snake uh, basically entrapped Eve and what that has to do with the pain of childbirth. And some very, very interesting teachings on that. So, so the question is, what's the tenth test of Abraham? And I think that in this we see a lot of what Judaism is all about and what it's saying to the world and what it's saying to us. And most people will tell you, almost everyone will tell you, the same answer, that the tenth test of Abraham was what's called the Akedas Yitzchak, which means the, the binding of Yitzchak, the binding of Isaac, where Abraham is asked to take Isaac and to put him on the altar and seemingly to kill him, which actually... God never requested, and that's a whole study in itself. And the test, believe it or not, was not whether Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac. That wasn't the test either. So, but we've discussed these things before. So, so we're not going to get into the, the amazing aspect of what, what was going on there so much right now. By the way, I just want to tell you something. Just, again, how gloriously precise the Torah is. The word Yitzchak is, is spelled... Yud, Sadi, Ches, Kuf. And in this name, Yitzchak, you see the life of Yitzchak. Because Yitzchak was put on the altar. This is, most people say, the, the, the tenth test. Yud is the number ten. That's the first letter of the name of Yitzchak. This is the, the tenth test of Abraham, or the tenth test of Abraham. Sadi, the second letter of the name Yitzchak, is Gematria 90, which is the age that Sarah was when she gave birth to Yitzchak. Ches, the third letter of Yitzchak, is the number eight. He was the first person ever who was circumcised on the eighth day. And Kuf, the last letter of Yitzchak, is a hundred. Abraham was a hundred when Yitzchak was born. So here you see in the name Yitzchak, the entire story of Yitzchak. Incredible, incredible the way the Torah works. And by the way, Yitzchak was one of the three people named before he was born in Torah. 
So you've got lots and lots of things going on. So most people will tell you that the tenth test of Abraham was, was whether or not he was willing to sacrifice Yitzchak. Again, that's not what was going on. It was much more than that. See, because Abraham wouldn't hold anything back from God. Abraham showed that he was willing to give up his own life, give up everything in the entire world for God. And that he trusted God. And that God said to him, you're going to have children and descendants through Yitzchak. So, so the real test, according to the Zohar, was, was how do I relate to God when I don't understand what he's talking about? Not only that, but when he seems to contradict himself. How could it be that, God, you're telling me to kill Isaac, and at the same time you're telling me that the descendants are going to come out of Isaac? So, this was the incredible nature of the test. How, how do you serve a God who you don't understand? And, of course, Abraham amazingly passes through this test, because he says, you know what, if God told me that descendants are going to come out of Yitzchak, that's what it is, and I don't know how it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. And somehow, Abraham, even though he was tested... And this is considered the greatest test any individual in all of history was ever given. Past it. Okay. That's just touching on it the smallest bit. But, but that's not actually what I want to tell you. What I really want to tell you is that there's a Rishon, his name is escaping me right now, but one of our greatest, greatest rabbis, who says that that wasn't the tenth test. That the tenth test was actually the beginning of Parsha's Chayesura, where Sarah has now passed away, and Abraham is going to get a burial spot for her. And he finds this cave, it's called Morasamach Pelah, the cave of the patriarchs, it's in Hebron in Israel. You can go to it today, you can see it today. And um, actually I was, I was there, um, and Abraham's buried there, Yitzchak is buried there, Yaakov is buried there, Sarah is buried there, Rivka is buried there, Leah is buried there, and Adam and Chava are buried there. And I went, and I went in, and I ran out. I mean, it was like, I couldn't take it. It's, it, was, it was too holy. It's like, you're seeing like these areas and it's, there's a plaque that says Abraham. And it's like, I couldn't take it. I, I ran in, I, I didn't, I walked in, I ran out. Where is it? This is in Hebron, in Israel. It's an awesome, awesome, awesome place. Um, the Zohar says that's the entrance to the Garden of Eden. That's where heaven and earth kiss. And not only that, but that after 120, when our souls leave our bodies, our journey up to the higher spheres, to Shemaim, to heaven, we actually go through that, that, that passageway. So, so, so this, this place was very, very awesome. Now, now listen to this. The Medrash says something very, very intense. The Zohar says something very, 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 very intense. Which is, see, let me just remind us where we are in the talk right now. According to this Rishon, the tenth test 
was buying this cave from Ephron, who owned it. He was a member of the tribe of, of this nation called the... He was a Chiti. Uh, that's the name of his people. Ephron HaChiti. And he was a really difficult guy. And he starts off by saying, you, Abraham, you're like, you're like the prince. You're like the prince of the world. Would I hold anything back from you? Take it. Take it. Bury your dead. That's how he starts off. And he ends up ripping Abraham off <laughs> and charging him the most exorbitant price for the land. Alright? So, that sounds like an uncomfortable experience. However, it's very difficult to understand how is it possible that that test, that difficult real estate business negotiation is considered to be a greater test than offering up your miracle baby. Like, there's really no way to wrap your mind around that. Because the tenth test has to be the greatest test. That's has to be the highest test. So, so the answer is the following. Something incredible. Something actually incredible. And I think here you see one of the central tenets of what the Torah is all about. You see, the point of Judaism, the point of our lives, is not to transcend this world. That's the ninth test. That's what Abraham was able to do when he brought up Yitzchak. He just basically mavatled himself. He just, he basically just as an entity, disappeared within the infinity of God. He was able to just put aside everything, all of his, all of his own self, and just connect with God on the deepest level. Whatever God wanted, that's what he wanted to do. Complete transcendence from this world. But that's just the ninth test. Here's the tenth test. Can you, after you elevate yourself and transcend yourself, can you then come back down into the world and bring that awesome level of spirituality back down in the world where you're now able to negotiate with a difficult businessman over a plot of land when he wants to rip you off? That's the final point in Judaism. Not just transcendence, but taking that light from transcendence and then bringing it back down into the world. That's what's asked of us. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's awesome. Because there are a lot of people who don't get that. They just, you know, it's like, they just check out. <laughs> You're not done yet. <laughs> you checked out. I'm glad that you got to the level of checking out. Now check back in. Now check back in and have the patience. Right? Because how much patience does it take to deal with difficult people? It takes a lot of patience. And so ideally, you see, and this really, this really tells you like what real holiness and what spirituality is. You see? Because there are some people who, who take 
spirituality and holiness. And unfortunately, it becomes corrupted with arrogance. And what that means is, is that, you know what? I can't relate to you. Uh, You know what? Something happened along the way. I became holy, and now I can't relate to you. (laughs) I'm very sorry to inform you of this development in our relationship. See, because real holiness... See, Reb Shlomo put it so beautifully one time. He said, you know, in science, if you want to measure how high something is, you measure how the distance it is from the ground. Right? How far off it is from the ground. But when it comes to measuring holiness, you measure how close you are to another person. See, the measure of holiness is really the measure of closeness. Rabbi Shlomo said that this mitzvah that we have, to love your neighbor as yourself, who is your neighbor? It's not the person who owns the house next to you, or the apartment who lives in the apartment next to you. Your neighbor is whoever you're standing next to at the moment. That's who your neighbor is. So, how close are you to each person? And that's, in other words, to what extent are you taking your level of transcendence Right? That's like the level of the ninth test. And using it in order to connect with every other person. Because it should make you... Those levels, if they're properly realized, those levels of holiness should actually bond you more and more to every other person in the entire world. That's, that's, That's how we really understand what spirituality actually is. Okay, so now, now I want to go deeper into this idea, and then we'll go back to the, God willing, we'll go back to this, this idea of, of um, this, this incredible cave of the patriarchs, when Abraham is burying Sarah, and, and find out something really amazing about Eve, and the snake, and all the whole nature of the, the enticement. But let's, let's go deeper into this idea of the ninth test and the tenth test, of transcending this world and then bringing it back down into this world in a real way. Now, I'll tell you something. I, there's a teaching that I've been struggling with for a number of years, and uh, I'll just share it with you. I, uh, this explanation came to me this week in a dream, and it wasn't something that I was thinking about at all before I went to bed or that week just kind of came to me and uh, and I'm going to share it with you and it relates to this idea you see the Chernobyl Rebbe discusses this so that's going back a couple of hundred years and it's a, it's a much older teaching than this I have to find the exact source of it but um, but it's a, it's a it's a very very old teaching and that's the following. That at all times, at every moment, the letters Yud and Zion are coming out of person. At all times. Yud and Zion, Yud and Zion, Yud and Zion. And I have, could not wrap my mind around what this means. And I even discussed it with, with people they either, either hadn't heard of this teaching. It's a real teaching. 
or they also had no idea what it was, or someone knew someone who knew someone who thought he understood it and I tried to explain it to me and couldn't get it. But then all of a sudden I got what I felt was a handle on it. And so I'd like to share it with you. So, so it's the following thing. You see, we have a very central teaching in, in Torah. If you want to really understand what's going on on a moment-to-moment basis in terms of just the nature of reality, which is that God is creating and recreating the universe at every single moment. Every single nanosecond, God is creating and recreating the universe. And that's a very, very strong tenet. And we say it in Chakras twice. Actually, right after Baruch Hu, if you look in the sitter, you'll see it said, and then a few paragraphs later, it said again. So it's really a very strong uh, belief that we have. W- one way to understand it is, you know, now I guess uh, all sorts of editing is, is digital, but um, back in the day when they had film strips, if you would understand holding a film strip in front of you, you have one picture, and then below it another picture, another frame, and then another frame, another picture. But they're stagnant. But if you run them together quickly, they create the illusion of movement. And so that's kind of what's going on in terms of our own reality, which is that there's this illusion of movement, but at the same time, every single moment is is this independent entity in and of itself, because the world is being created and recreated and recreated. Right? So, so, Kabbalistically speaking, the way God does that, is God takes this, this energy of the ten spherot, which are all these different kind of dimensions of reality, and God basically uses them to create and recreate the world. We call it, in other contexts, simsum. Sort of like God takes his light, and he sort of like takes the spiritual light and he condenses it until it becomes a physical entity. You know, that's a lot of what's going on with the formula E equals MC squared, where energy becomes mass. So... So, so, on a breakdown level, we've got this idea of the ten spherot. Ten is the letter Yud. So, the letter Yud in Zion is coming at us at all times. So, what does that mean, the letter Yud is coming at us at all times? Because the energy of creation is coming at us at all times, because the world is being created and recreated, created and recreated, through the agency of these ten sphere up. That's potential energy. Now we have this letter Zion. Zion is the number seven. God created the world in seven days. Zion is the energy of completion. So, what's happening at all times is, you're given... This new start, that's the letter Yud. That's the recreation, constant recreation of the, energy, of the universe. All of the energy of the universe. And you respond with the letter Zion. That's the energy of completion. 
How are you completing? What are you doing with that energy? How are you transacting that energy into manifestation in this world? Yud and Zion, Yud and Zion, Yud and Zion, Yud and Zion, at all times. The world is being recreated. That's Yud, that's the ten sphere oak coming together in terms of the physical reality of the universe. Zion, that's seven, that's completion. How are you taking that energy and using it and manifesting it in a real way? Now, if you think about this, now I want to add something else because this was also part of the dream explanation on a completely different topic, but also on the same topic, which is the last word in the Torah. The last word in the Torah is the word, word uh, Yisrael, or Israel. And there are many, many things that you can say about the fact that the last word in the Torah is the word Israel. I mean, a lot of things that you can say. All good. The Torah we know is not a book. The Torah existed before the world itself was created. The Torah is two things mainly. It is, number one, the will of God. You see, before you embark on an endeavor, you have a desire for what that endeavor should be. God had a desire for what He wanted the world to be. So that's what it means that the Torah existed before the world was created. Because the Torah is God's desire, His plan for the world. That's the first part. The next part is even cooler. Because God then creates the world out of His desire. So first God has a will for the world. That's the Torah. Then God creates the world out of the Torah. He creates the world out of His will for the world. And that's the universe. So the world is literally made out of the Torah, and the DNA of the world is God's desire for the world itself. That means that the mitzvahs themselves are the building blocks of reality. That's what it means that God looked into the Torah and created the world. You see, there is clarity. There is a truth. How could it be, when you look at DNA, and it's so precise, it's so ridiculously precise, does anyone, would anyone think, you know what, ah, chromosomes, throw in an extra Y chromosome, let's not be stingy. You know, you know what you make? You make crazy mutations out of people. I mean, everyone knows how precise, or they'll say, you know what, the atomic weight of that element is, you know, throw in an extra thing, you, you'll, you make a completely different substance. Or throw in an extra electron, they're so small, let's not be stingy. Come on, a few more electrons. It's, it makes it completely different. Or let's not be so scientific. 
you know what? I like you. I like you, too. I'd like to get together with you. I'd like to get together with you, too. Can I have your number? I'll give you five digits of my number. I'm not going to tell you which five, either. What? You know, or have you ever... Have you ever had the frustrating experience of trying to get on a website and you just type one letter wrong? You know? Or you you do .org instead of .com or .com instead of .gov or whatever it is. You're in a completely different place. Everything in the world is so ridiculously precise we see it. So, So are we saying that there isn't one giant truth? Where do we get permission? It's just for me, it's just lazy thinking. It's lazy thinking. Where do we give ourselves permission to say, everything in the world is so ridiculously precise, except what I have to do in the world? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't go by me. Yeah, in the science lab, in the cosmos, in the migratory patterns of animals, but in terms of me and my own behavior, yeah. Give me a break. It doesn't apply to me, the precision of the universe. Who, who, who thinks that? That's laziness. It's just laziness. So, so, so let's go forward. You see, this whole idea... And I want you to just see that this is one thought that I'm talking about. We said that the ninth test was putting Yitzchak up on the altar. That's transcending this world, because what Abraham had to get rid of in terms of just his, his own ego, whatever it is, and to attach himself to God in totality, that's the ninth test, that's transcendence. Then to come back down into this world and to... And to be able to, to make it real spirituality. To make people more close with each other. Okay. Now, Yud and Zion. What is that? Yud and Zion is potential energy. Again, it's, it's like transcendence. It's sort of like the world is being created and recreated and recreated. And the question is, what do you do with that energy? Right? That's the level Zion. That's the seventh. That's the completion of creation. How you utilize that energy into this world. Okay? It's the same thought. Now, the Torah itself, on one level, because it's many things, on one level, it's also a microcosm of the whole history of the world. Okay? And the fact that the last word of the Torah is Israel, on a very basic level, shows you that we're all going back to Israel. It's the ingathering of all the exiles back to Israel. So, on a very simple level, Historically speaking, we're going back to Israel, and that's going to be the end. And there it is. It's the last word in the Torah. Okay? But I want to say something deeper, I think. That in itself is pretty deep, because you have to have so many things, so, much, so many things lined up just to get that thought. But anyway, that thought's pretty understandable. But I want to say something else. You see, we know that the Torah is black fire on white fire. What that means on a very basic level, as, as far as I understand it, is black fire is that which is revealed, white fire is that which is not revealed. It's beyond. It's beyond. 
And also it just gives us respect for what a Torah scroll is. It's not just the things that are, it's not just ink on a page. The, the, the white spots of the, of the Torah scroll also have a tremendous holiness. So it's black fire and white fire. And people darshan and explain spaces and gaps in the Torah which are just white spaces and learn tremendous things from them. Okay? So now, it's that which is revealed, black fire, that which is not revealed, white fire. Now, the last word of the Torah, the last bit of black fire in the Torah is the word Israel. Yisrael, meaning the Jewish people also. Not just the land, the Jewish people. Now listen to this. What does the word Yisrael mean? What does it mean? Okay, it means to struggle with God. To wrestle with God. And why do we wrestle with God? Why do we wrestle with Him? Because we have something called the Yetzirah. We have this, this negative inclination. You know, it's the classic thing that we all saw in a zillion cartoons. The angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder. You know, trying to compete for our loyalty. Okay? So it's this idea of wrestling with God. Now it says in the Gomorrah, in Gomorrah Sukkah, that the Yetzirah is going to be killed in the end of days. It's going to be shechted, right? Slaughtered. Which means that the whole concept of temptation, the whole concept of there being any barriers between us and fulfilling the word of God are going to be completely erased. So, based on this, what I want to say is, the word Yisrael is the last word in the Torah because that word, which means to wrestle with God, to struggle with God, at the end of history, since it's the last word in the Torah, it's representing the end of history, there's not going to be any struggle left. That's the last moment of struggle. That's the last, that's the last bit of black fire, the last revealed aspect of creation, when there's still a Yetzirah. And then, white fire, the next chapter of existence, which has not been revealed yet. So you have the last note that the Torah is talking about is the last moment of the existence of the Yetzirah, the last moment of struggle between mankind and God, and then into the white fire. Because the struggle ends, and this whole next epoch opens up. Right? Of transcendence. Right? Awesome. Awesome, 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 awesome. Okay. So now let's get back to Eve and the snake. Alright? So listen to what the Zohar says. Abraham goes to bury Sarah. Adam and Chava are there. Adam and Eve are there. That's where they're buried. And they get out of their graves. And Sarah refuses to, or Eve rather, refuses to be consoled. Because she brought down death into the world. That's what it says when you, when they ate from the, when they ate from the tree of knowledge, of right and wrong. She brings down death into the world. By the way, it says, and you will die on that day. And people, if you eat, you'll die on that day. So I just saw this account. I forgot where I saw it, but something really very compelling. 
So everyone wants to ask, well, Adam lives till 930. What do you mean he's going to die on that day? So the explanation that I saw, which I find really, really compelling, is it says in the Psalms, in the Tehillim, a, a day in your eyes, meaning God, a day for you is, is a thousand years. Now we know that David HaMelech, King David, lived for 70 years. And the Medrash says that Adam, and by the way, Adam is an acronym, it's Aleph Dalad Mem, for Adam, David, Mashiach. Meaning the first person is a microcosm of the whole path toward ultimate fixing. Right? All contained within the name Adam himself. That Adam foresaw that there would be this child, basically the messianic line, who would die at birth. And so he gave him 70 years of his life. So that's, that's how they understand the fact that Adam lived to 930 years, and David lived for 70 years. But if you combine them, you see that Adam was supposed to live for a thousand years. And what does it say? You'll die the day you eat from the tree. Well, a day in God's eyes is a thousand years. So it's actually very precise, the fact that he did die the day that he ate, but from a different timetable. See, this is the depth of the Torah. You have to understand, the Torah doesn't... Sometimes it's very clear. When it says don't steal, it says just don't steal. (laughs) But what else does don't steal mean? What else does it mean? I mean, everything is working on so many different levels. You just have to have the depth and, you know, apprentice yourself to the, to the great rabbis who, who have understood these things. And how have they understood them, by the way? You think that he was just smarter than you? No, they, they, they climbed the heights of holiness through an incredibly disciplined way of living their lives. You know, through unbelievable applied open-heartedness, which really is basically saintliness, you know? Anyway. So, Adam and Eve get out of the grave. Can you picture this? And Eve says, I'm so ashamed. I'm so ashamed. And she won't be consoled. They're trying to rebury her. They rebury Adam. They're, they're trying to rebury Eve. They're not having any success. And, and Abraham says, Abraham says, don't worry. We're here to fix what you guys did. Because Abraham and Sarah are the fixing of Adam and Eve. And more precisely, we see that Sarah is the fixing of Chava. Okay? So, Chava means Eve. So, let's get to this question. And this is a question I think everyone should ask themselves. If you didn't ask yourself up until now, and I'm, I'm included in this uh, category of people who didn't ask themselves this question, you should kick yourself for not asking yourself this question. Which is the following. Why did the snake go to Eve and not to Adam? Right? Very good basic question. And, uh, and I'm going to tell you Reb Shlomo Karlovach's answer because it's phenomenally deep. 
in my opinion. So, and it will be a way of understanding what the curse is to Eve that she's going to have pain during childbirth. How are we to understand this whole concept of a woman being cursed with pain during childbirth? Okay? So, all these questions are going to be addressed. And, and here's the, and it's going to tie into what we've been talking about earlier as well. So, listen to this. You see, what, you know, you could probably give different answers to this question, but this is a pretty good answer. What is the most godlike person, the most godlike thing a person can do? It's the most godlike thing a person can do. Give birth. Absolutely. That's, that's the answer that I want. And you see, Eve, at this point in her life, hadn't given birth yet. But intuitively, she understood that there was something godlike about her. But because she hadn't given birth yet, she, she wasn't able to tap in. She didn't know what it was exactly. She knew that there's something, something special about me, right? But she didn't know what it was yet. See, Adam didn't have, doesn't have that. Men don't have that. Woman does have that. So if you look right in the Torah itself, it says, what was, the, what was the lie of the snake? The snake says, eat this and you're going to be like God. Now, she understood there is something godlike about me. The snake is actually making sense. Because I do, he is putting me in touch with this aspect of myself. And then, of course, he leads her astray. He gets her to go against the will of God. See, if you think about it, there's, there, there's all sorts of modern... See, this, this applies, even though we're talking specifically about a woman right now. The truth is, is that this conversation is taking place with all of us all of the time. Because this is the whole idea of the Yud and the Zion coming at us at all times. We are getting this yud energy. We are getting this tremendous potential, universe-strong energy directed at us all the time. And we have a piece of God within ourselves. That's our soul. So we know that there's something God-like about us. And then people are coming up to us, and they're putting us in touch with our potential with it, right? And then what do they say? You know what you should do with this God-like aspect of yourself? Buy an iPhone. Take drugs. Buy a Mercedes. You want to be ride like a god with the gas mileage that you can get on a Prius? Yeah. It's listen, I'll tell you something. Rashi says every good lie begins with the truth. See? That's what happened with the spies. The first thing the spies say when they come back and they you know, savage the land of Israel in the eyes of the Jewish people. The first thing that they say is, it's a good land. It's the very first thing they say. So what happens then? Everybody's heart opens up. Because they hear the truth. Everyone's heart opens up. You hear the truth, your heart opens up. And then, bang, in go the lies. So, what happened with Chava? What happened with Eve? 
The snake says, you've got something godlike about you. And Chava says, I know it's true. I know it's true. Because she has this ability to, to make children. And then he tells her to get to eat from the tree of right and wrong. The knowledge of right and wrong. Now listen to what Reb Shlomo says. And then she gets punished with pain during childbirth. And this is so uniquely Reb Shlomo, this explanation. I mean, in terms of his style. If you want to kind of taste kind of his style, you see it very uniquely presented here. He says, you know what, when it comes to raising children, if you think everything is just on the level of right and wrong, you're going to have a lot of pain raising your children. You're going to have a lot of pain with your children. If you don't know that it's deeper than right and wrong, I mean, there is right and wrong. We have to respect right and wrong. But it's deeper than that. And if you just want to run your child's upbringing, this is right, this is wrong, this is right, this is wrong, this is right, this is wrong, you're going to have a lot of pain. So, doesn't mean there isn't right and wrong, by the way. But it's deeper than that. And the two coexist, but, but finding that place is, you know, that's a lot of it. So, so we have to know what to do with the godliness inside of us. And so I just want to begin to wrap it up right now, but really to make the point in terms of us on a very real here and now level. You see, people can understand that they've got godliness inside of them. And the question is, what are you going to do with that piece of information? So, so a lot of the lot of develop the lot a lot of the development of the human personality that takes place from the time that you're born to the time that you grow up. Remember, all of us who, and I include myself in this category, didn't grow up in a in a Torah observant household. You know, and, and by the way, even someone who's very religious from birth, someone who grows up in the most religious community in Jerusalem, in Meisharim, in a way doesn't grow up in a religious household. And what I mean by that is that it says, mystically speaking, your Yetzer Tov, your positive inclination, doesn't enter into you until your bar or bat mitzvah. I don't know if you knew that. That's a very interesting piece of information. What that means is, that doesn't mean that anyone who, that doesn't mean that children from the, before their bar mitzvah will never do anything good. That's not what that means. What it means is, is that one lives immersed in their own selfishness, in their own yetzara-ness, for the first 12 or 13 years of their life. That's your whole orientation. Who's, listen, who's more selfish than a baby? Who's more demanding than a baby? You're born ridiculously selfish. Now, by the way, who's cuter than a baby? No one. But a baby's got to be really cute to get away with that activity, right? You know, you've got to be super cute. <laughs> So God's not, 
that's pretty smart. He says, okay, to the extent that you're selfish, that's how cute I'm going to make you, you know? You know, otherwise, you know, we'd go, eh, childbirth, I don't think so. So, and by the way, why, are, why is physical union between a man and a woman so pleasurable? To get us to have babies. Because otherwise people wouldn't have babies. Can you imagine if it's sort of like, how do I make a baby? Well, you've got to go down to the DMV. There are a number of forms you have to fill out. And let me tell you, the lines are pretty long, so you've got to arrange with your boss to... It's like, you know what, maybe I'll have children next year. But God makes it great to have babies in order to make you have a baby. That is why that is so pleasurable. And by the way, it's also so pleasurable because it's supposed to tell you how good it is to talk to and love and relate to God. I heard that in the name of the Rambam, that 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 level of pleasure is just there as a metaphor for one's relationship with God, what it's supposed to be. To just open your mind to what that relationship can be. So, so anyway. So, if you know that you have this level of godliness inside of you, the question is, what are you doing with it? Okay? Now, now here's the real question. Who's the boss? You see, you see, One way of understanding it is that if I've got godliness inside of me, I'm the boss. Right? Now that's a really super low level of thinking. Super low. If you think it through more, if you're a little bit more intelligent about it, you say, well, wait a second, this is just a piece of God. So that means I've got a small piece of God, and that means I'm surrounded by the infinity of God. So, the knowledge that you've got a piece of God in you should awaken you to the fact that there's a, a largeness to God, to say the least, an infinity of God surrounding you. So, that actually should have the opposite effect of, on you. It should make a person so humble, so humble, to think that I'm like one penny and here's the entire bank. Right? That's because then that's reality. So, so in our own lives, you have to ask yourself the question, how are we living our lives? Are we saying that God is the ultimate authority or that I personally am the ultimate authority? Right? And transferring that allegiance to saying that God is the ultimate authority And then I'm going to do the best that I can do. I can't do everything at once. You're not supposed to do everything at once because that will just blow out your brains and just short-circuit your whole spiritual growth. can't do everything at once. But I recognize the fact that, God, you are the ultimate authority, and then I'm going to get there over time the best way that I can. That's how we have to live our lives. Now, I'm going to say something more subtle, but actually in in its own way, more devastating. Once someone becomes religious, so to speak, quote-unquote, whatever religious means, but once someone begins to grow and develop and become more sophisticated, they can make this mistake. Now listen to this. Where a person says, God, you're the boss. You're the boss. And you know why you're the boss? Because I said you're the boss. <laughs> listen to how subtle 
the psychology of that is. One transfers power to God and then transfers it back to themselves. See, because I say, you're God. You see? And that's something that all of us have to be in touch with again. Because at some point in our lives, we may have made that step and said, God, you're the one. But then, without even realizing it, we may have reinvested ourselves with the, the badge and the, the big set of keys on our belt. <laughs> right? Alright, so that's a lot to think about. <laughs> Shem should bless us that we should take this Yud that's coming at us at all times, this potential energy, the opportunities of a recreated universe, and to really be the best Zions, right? The best completers of that energy. Bringing us all the way to that last word in the Torah. Israel, right? Which will be the end of this epoch and the beginning of the next. Yeah.